0: And welcome to this second Virtual sheet Music interview. My name is Fabrizio Ferrari, and our guest today is Todd L. joining us via Skype from Texas. Hello, Todd, and thank you for joining us.
1: Hello, Fabrizio. Thank you for having me.
0: Todd is an Associate Professor of Violin at the Del Mar College in Corpus Christi, Texas, where he has taught since 1999. But Todd is also known as Professor V on YouTube for his very popular Violin Lessons channel, with hundreds of instructional videos and counting almost 4 million views since 2007. His channel is actually among the most famous YouTube channels on violin learning. Well, what to say, Todd? Congratulations! Looks, you are really talented and famous violin teacher, which is great.
1: Thank you. That's an honor. I appreciate (laughs) it. I think they call it micro-fame, though. I (laughs) haven't recognized on the street yet. (laughs)
0: Yeah, sure. And, uh, yeah, so my first natural question is uh, how everything started. How did you get the idea to start a YouTube channel about violin lessons?
1: Well, one of my jobs at the college, Delmar College, where I teach, is to recruit students and I had an idea that I could make some instructional videos and then go out to the local schools and direct them towards these videos because there's many many more students than I could personally teach one-on-one instruction every day so I had this idea and uh, I started making the videos and right away people started paying attention but they weren't the local kids they were other people who then started asking me questions. How do I do this? How do I do that? And so I started responding to those videos or to those questions by making other videos. So my initial project was not very organized. It was bow hand, violin hold, and then I think they wanted vibrato. I <laughs> mean, we jumped right to it. So it wasn't in order. So since then, I've gone back and tried to. Put an order system to it, which is on my website toddale. but not on the YouTube site. So you'll notice that things are a little chaotic if you're trying to navigate your way through.
0: I understand. It's probably been a, like a sort of work in progress, right? Absolutely, all the time. I understand. That's the way it usually goes on the internet. So since the time you started this project on YouTube, how your life actually has changed?
1: You know, my life actually changed before, and I think it was. Part of the reason I did this, about six and a half years ago, I developed some real neck problems, and it's neck and shoulder, and it made it almost impossible for me to keep performing, and really difficult to even practice. So, one of the things I wanted to do was still be able to communicate with my students, and I made some videos, and part of it, in the back of my mind was, let's get these things recorded so I can document what I know before I can't play at all. Because I was actually told by a doctor, he said, you need to go into administration and and stop playing. So uh, I did not take his advice. And I have with therapists actually been recovering some and, and I'm playing more. But the videos changed my life only moderately. I would say at first I was on the computer a lot more because I was trying to answer questions. I finally I gave up with that. It's too hard to answer so many specific questions and then you know what's very easy to show is often very difficult when you write it out to give just the right information. So I finally blocked it so that they couldn't send me messages personally. I they can understand. still comment. People can comment but Sure, uh, I, sure. I'm not accepting question after question. And I understand,
0: okay. even because uh, by look at the numbers of su- subscribers you have, would it would be probably really it, yeah. overwhelming.
1: Well, the night I did it, I, I think I, I checked my personal messages and there were 66 questions. And I just thought I, <laughs> I have, have to stop. <laughs> That's a lot. It's, it's a lot.
0: <laughs> really. yeah, it's, it's a lot. And uh, I was wondering, do you have uh, any special uh, interesting or a music experience uh, uh, you got through your channel or you would like to share with us today?
1: I think if you wanna the funniest thing about the channel is when I created it, it certainly was just to have a username on YouTube. And I picked Professor V because I wanted something I would be able to remember. So I thought, well, I'm a professor of violin. It had nothing to do with the idea that I was going to teach. Uh, my friends, they make fun of me and call me Professor Five. I so, <laughs> <laughs> see.
0: That's right. <laughs> right. Yeah,
1: that's
0: right.
1: right. Uh, no, I, I have had some pretty fascinating uh, emails from people, even in Iraq during the war, some not not soldiers, but someone trying to learn violin in Baghdad. Really? Communicating with him amazing. during the invasion. I mean, it was it was after the invasion, but it was you know very touching to me that this person was just trying to do something so human and, and so important to me, and we were corresponding. Sure, so sure. I've had a lot of things like that. So
0: Wow, that's really amazing. Thank you. It, it has been. Yes. Yeah, and um, so moving to a more general perspective, I'm sure that our audience would like to learn more about your uh, philosophy of teaching. Uh, Uh, Would you like to tell us about that?
1: It it has changed over the years, and of course, I have many different types of students. I have very, very young students all the way through the college students. And to have one philosophy, uh, at first I I thought, well, that's impossible. But, you know, in the end, I I came up with my goal is to inspire the love of learning. And I want to show that the process of learning is even more important the final result. I agree. You can spend your whole life with this.
0: I agree. I agree with that completely. And um, do you plan to keep adding new videos to your YouTube channel for the years to come?
1: I haven't decided. You know, the things that are there are, they they came very easily for me because it's, it's information that I share with students every single day. Now, there are other things in my mind that I am sharing, but not all of it translates well into a five minute video. So, I haven't really decided if I'm going to keep going. I don't want it to just be silly things.
0: I understand, even because I don't know, I'm a violinist myself. I would be afraid to run out of topics. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) After a while, after more than 100 video lessons that you already did.
1: You you can run out of great ideas. There's no doubt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I don't want to just throw things out there. I think that I need to be careful at this point and and really think it through before I continue.
0: Yeah, sure. That sounds great to me. And so we all look forward to keep watching and learning from you, Todd. Thank you. For everyone interested to learn more, please visit www.virtualsheetmusic.com slash interviews slash L to find links to Professor L video lessons, to get in touch with him and eventually to subscribe to his wonderful YouTube channel. Now it's time to move on with the questions we have been collecting in the past three weeks from our audience. We got as usual uh, over 50 questions and with the fact we let our audience vote for these questions we could pick the most uh, voted ones to ask to you today, Todd. So, of course, uh, they are all questions about violin technique and violin learning, and uh, as a violinist myself, I'm eager to hear your answers. So, the first uh, voted question is by Jose, who asks, is there a method for memorizing sheet music?
1: Well, I can't give you a method. I can just tell you what I do myself and how I instruct my students. And the first piece of advice is don't wait until you've learned a piece to begin memorization. Because you will become very confident with the sheet music. And then when you try and wean yourself off, there's that sense of, oh, I I cannot play it anymore. It's very disturbing. So I would say from the very beginning, if you have sheet music on, on your stand you can play through it a couple times, then just do a measure, turn around and play that measure. Maybe play it 10 times so that you put it in your muscle memory, in your oral memory, turn around, look at it, put it in your visual memory. There are three types of memory. Then do the next measure. And then maybe you do the same process and then try and play the two together. So I break it into sections, maybe a measure at a time, maybe a phrase, a line, however your mind works. But think of them as train cars that you're coupling together, putting all these sections together. Now I mentioned the three types of memory. It's oral, what you hear, visual, what you see, and kinesthetic, which is your muscle memory. What does it feel like? So some people have very highly developed, uh, one of these or another, The sense of say visual memory is very strong so they can look at the page, see it, and then you have maybe a photographic memory. Others really struggle with one of those, so then you want to try and learn it in more than one manner. I had a professor that used to say, if you can lay in your bed or sit in a chair and play through the entire piece just in your mind, know every shift, every bowing, then you really have it. So there's some ideas, but I try and do it just a tiny bit at a time so I'm not overwhelmed. One measure, turn around, that's not too much information. And then repeat it, and then do the next measure. And just chip away at it every day.
0: It's a great tip. Thanks. Okay. The second question is by Deb Devon, who asks, are there any good exercises you can suggest to add relaxation in the bow arm or hand?
1: Well, maybe I can show you something. A lot of students will come to me and I will see tension in their bow hand, maybe this peak or a collapsed pinky and rigid fingers. And then when they start to play, I see this the whole time. And the first thing that I want to say to you is to let the bow weight be held by the violin. So if you look at my pinky, I come down curved, it's relaxed, I'm on the string, when I lift it, I feel the weight in that pinky. When I set it down, my pinky is then relaxed. I usually keep it on the stick, but if you tap your fingers, you're completely relaxed and the weight of the bow is being held by the violin. And then you can create artificial weight by adding the weight of the arm at the frog or as you work your way towards the tip, you'll have to start feeling the thumb go up and the first finger come down, so you can get the stick into the hair or into the string here. But you don't have to add a a tremendous amount. As you bow from here, you add a little more, a little more, a little more. I show an exercise where I have, you start with all four fingers on the string, totally relaxed, like tap your fingers, then as you bow, you lift your fingers. Pinky goes up, then your ring goes up, and your middle finger goes up. Then you turn it around and you add, add, add. So you're teaching that rolling sensation or the transfer of weight from all four fingers to the first finger and then back to all four. But again, I let the instrument support the weight of the bow.
0: Wonderful. So the third question is by Carl Silva who asks, What exercise do you use to stretch your fourth finger, so it is not flat?
1: Well, I don't try and stretch anything that concerns me. That would create tension. I don't believe you can make your hand size much larger. So what I do is I adjust the hand position. And really, it's the thumb. But there's a couple ways to think about it. I teach my students to support the instrument between, there's a bone right there above the crease or the, the knuckle on the thumb. So I rest the boat, the violin there and then on the other side as well. So it's that point. And there's a little space underneath it. Now that is a starting point. But if you look, I could actually set it where I can't even reach my pinky. Or I can adjust my thumb and my elbow a little bit I could come lower I can come higher depending on the size of your hand so what you can do is actually put your fourth finger down first and then place your other fingers that should set your thumb in the proper place be careful not to have this way out here though I like to maintain contact with both sides of the fingerboard place your finger but look if you have a big hand your thumb can be much higher than if you have a little hand okay so if I see some girl, a very small child, who is having trouble reaching her pinky, I may have that thumb quite a bit under the neck. Let's see if you can see it there. Like that. But if you have very large hands, like, say, Itzhak Perlman, this, even Heifetz, his uh, thumb comes up here. So really concentrate on the placement of your thumb. But do not distort your wrist when you come under. Don't let that wrist pull out. There's risk of carpal tunnel
0: Absolutely. syndrome if you bend the wrist. And I like your concept where everyone is different by another.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. The fourth question is by Greg Ronalds who asks, "How many hours a week should a beginner violinist practice?"
1: Well, I try and break it into each day, not into hours per week. Initially, you you might try just practicing the length of your lesson. So if you're taking a 15 minute lesson, say the child is six, 15 minutes, that's an attention span for a six-year-old. If you have a half hour lesson, start with that. What you should do then is, I mean, really what it comes down to is the amount of concentration. Once you've lost concentration or focus, you're done. You should stop. If you want to come back again the same day, say later in the day, that's okay. As long as you have focus you can actually keep progressing. So I don't say you must do this amount. I know some teachers that do, and mostly it's to get students who aren't motivated to actually get their hands on the instrument. But I would just say that as your concentration skills develop, the amount of practice time will develop. Also, you want to ease into it physically too because you don't want to create tendinitis or, or injury by suddenly practicing a lot more.
0: Sure, sure, absolutely. The fifth question is by one of our members who asks, how can one reteach a student who has developed bad bow-hand habits under someone else's instruction?
1: Well, the first thing is that you need to know what you're trying to achieve. If if someone says to you, I want you to hold it in a Russian bow-hold, You've been doing Franco-Belgian and I want Russian. Or, Or vice versa. You must know exactly what it is the teacher wants. Once you have a clear idea, then you can work to achieve that. With a bow hand, I'd have a student work with a pencil first. And then with a bow, I hold the bow this way, not this way, because it feels so much lighter when you point it towards the ceiling. Once you add the weight to the pinky, it becomes harder and many students start clutching. So develop here. Once you can do that, remember how we set it on the instrument and we lift the violin, support the weight. So say you're trying to work on a piece of music and change your technique at the same time. That's doing two things at once, which is pretty complicated. So what you might do is, again, isolate one measure, practice that one measure, stop, check your bow hand. Has it changed from what you think your new teacher wants you to be doing? If so, reset it. Do another measure, stop and check it. If you can get to one measure, try doing two. Try doing a phrase and then keep checking it. What I used to do was get a piece of paper and write down the technical things I was trying to achieve. Point one, point two, point three. I didn't do very many because it's very easy to become overwhelmed. But I would think about one or two things and take that piece of paper and tape it to my music stamp. So then I'm looking at the music. But whenever my eyes just wandered and I saw that point, then I would think about that point. So it was a trigger to remind me to work on that. And then as that became something I was confident with, I'd cross it off, work on the others, or put on a new piece of paper with all my goals up there. And so that way you slowly can start to to <clears throat> conquer all of these issues. I also will say that say you're in orchestra at school and the music isn't hard in a certain spot, instead of just daydreaming, you can think about your boat. So, uh, practice during a rehearsal if the music is easy, don't just sit there.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure, I agree, that's great tip, thank you. Uh, the sixth question is by MTCUI333, who asks, what is the best way to approach and practice double, triple and quadruple stops?
1: Yes, double stops certainly are a challenge and most of my students struggle with them. I will say first that you have to be able to play on two strings and maintain a beautiful tone. It's very easy to go out of tune or be scratchy or create squeaks with the right hand. And that has nothing to do with the left hand and tuning of the fingers. I can bend the string flat by pressing, so practice open strings just with a small bow at first, then start to extend the amount of bow, try and sustain it through the bow changes. Once you're comfortable with that, I believe double stops are about hand patterns or the hand frame, and about the interaction of the two notes. A great trick, and I I don't believe it'll work well through Skype, I doubt you can hear it, but take your first finger and play on the A string, you'll play a B, And then tune it, say, with open E, so it's a perfect fourth, and tune it until it's very smooth. So if you're too flat, you'll hear a a graininess or a distortion, too sharp, same problem. So play your one with open E until it totally sounds smooth to you. Don't move it, roll your bow, leave that one in the exact same place, roll your bow over so you're playing D in that first finger together. And then try and adjust it so it sounds smooth with the open D. You'll have to go lower. And what you'll notice from that is the interaction with the lower string requires a slightly lower finger. Which means you can't just say there's one place to put your one down. So with a double stop, we do something called just intonation. And that that is to actually eliminate beats. You don't have to do it, but it's it's a great way to train your ear. I heard a trumpet player say once, he said about string players, he said, string players can hear the grass grow. Yeah. And I believe it's because we're listening to the interaction of notes.
0: Absolutely.
1: When you start doing more than a double stop, so you go to triple stops, um, what the stop actually means is stopping three notes. So technically playing an open string isn't a stop, but doesn't matter. If you think about G major, Mozart, you know, and- <laughs> The important thing here would be, first of all, the hand pattern. So my B and my G create what feels like a half step. They're touching. Now, if you have really thick fingers, they're going to be touching tighter than if you have thin fingers. So you use your ear to make the determination, but they create a touching pattern. And then you have to learn how to do the bow stroke. Now I like to think of the bottom two notes. There's only three notes, right? But I play the open D with a first finger on the A string. I play those together, and then I roll my bow to the upper strings, which is a one and a two. One on the A string, two on the E string, and I play them together. Now, when you string cross, you can move your bow out a little bit towards the fingerboard so that the angles aren't so severe. Use some bow speed, and I try and raise my elbow just a little bit so I don't roll this way roll that way and I try and keep my bow on the upper two strings and gives the illusion that I'm playing all three. And you would say the same thing about quadruple stops. You can't play all four at once. I can't even play all four at once if I go all the way out to the fingerboard. There's still going to be a rolling motion. But what I don't want to do is just roll right off of it. So I feel the elbow come up. I hope that makes sense. Sure, so it's hand pattern. It's the relationship of the two notes, and then it's how the bow crosses the string.
0: It's perfectly clear. Yeah, unfortunately via Skype, the audio, of course, the audio make, is bad. Uh, much
1: justice. So that's what I was expecting.
0: Yeah, exactly. So um, the next question, uh, the seventh question, is by Sarah Pauls, who asks. How do I regulate my vibrato so it remains even? I know it's all in the relaxation of the arm, but do you have any other tips?
1: Right, I... Well, the first thing I would say is when you're trying to regulate vibrato, uh, many times the first thing you'll do is squeeze the arm muscles and tighten up, trying to control it. And it's very dangerous. You know, the tension of the arm always travels up the shoulder and into the neck and the head and and so you want to do it in a relaxed manner and just find what works for you I heard or read that Paul Rowland said a artistic vibrato was five to nine cycles in a second okay (laughs) that gives you a little leeway but even five per second and you can test this by setting your metronome to 60 and see how many oscillations you can get between the clicks. So <clears throat> you can that that doesn't really teach you how to control it, but it does show you what you're doing. So if you are too wide, try instead of rotating deeper into the the pad of the finger, try and stay a little closer to the bony tip. Maybe that will narrow it down. If you're, too, if you're too narrow, you then want to transfer the weight from here deeper into the finger. And there has to be some flexibility in their first finger, uh, in that first knuckle. And that will give you a wider sensation. Now, when I was at Eastman, I remember my teacher saying, if you were too wide, she said, I, I say this with tremendous caution, and I, I almost hesitate to say, but I'll tell you what she said. She said, feel the underside of the finger as not being allowed to open. I told that to another violin professor who said, that's the worst idea I ever heard because it immediately creates a tension in the hand. So perhaps you can understand that that's just not allowing it to go wider, but then just try and do it by not rolling so deep. In the end, use your ear to determine what's going on. You can tell if it's wobbly. You can often tell if it's too slow Uh, you can also set your metronome to well i think 105 is the technical number but my metronome i think goes to 104 and then try and get remember how i said paul roland said anything between five to nine cycles per second was desirable if you pick the number in the middle it'd be seven okay but you could to do that set your metronome to 105 then practice knocking a peg and try and get four motions, four motions, would you set your metronome to one to five? Four motions in between each click. So that is a goal that would put you right between the five and the nine. That's seven cycles.
0: Great tips. The eighth question is by Nelly Vick, who asks, what is the best way to teach independent fingering?
1: Yeah, that is a a—it's a hot-button subject, yeah. almost like healthcare or, or social security. <laughs> I, I have known so many people that were so strongly opinionated about this. And personally, I think we do both. I think you do independent and block fingering. In, in case you don't know what we're talking about, block fingering is where you keep all your fingers down independent fingering is where you only leave the finger down that you're using. Okay, so when a student first starts to play I usually approach with block fingering so that they start to understand a hand frame or patterns because on the fingerboard there are no keys, buttons, frets. You have to understand what a whole step is and what a half step is. And so I have them feel a half step if their hand is big enough. As I said, everybody's got a different size of hand and a very small hand may not even touch for a half step, but they're close. Okay. After that, the problem with keeping all your fingers down is that you can exponentially create tension in the hand and the arm. And then when you try and do vibrato, it's very difficult. So when I start to talk about independent fingering, First of all, it's important that you keep the old finger down until the new finger begins. And then you're free to lift the old finger. And you don't really want it popping up. You want to keep it close to the string. But I still like to think, what is the distance? So if I'm going from one to three, I still like to think, where would my two be if I set it down in the key that I'm playing? Say it's an F sharp or an F natural. I like to think, where would it be? so that my hand is always in tune. And then it's easiest to play independent fingers and slow passages with lots of vibrato, so you're, you're free to, to vibrate. If you're playing very quickly, it doesn't make any sense to lift a finger if you're coming right back to it. So I hope that clarifies.
0: <laughs> I'm sure. <Okay.
1: laughs>
0: the ninth question is by Tony DeRosa who asks, is there any specific book you can suggest for learning violin basics?
1: Well, okay, I, I don't know how basic he wants to go. No uh, it could right <laughs> I mean I went to school with a guy named Robert Frost who wrote all for strings. This is a very well known method. And if you are at the very beginnings you, you want all four strings, book one for violin, and it, it gives you all sorts of information. But it's really basic, so you need to understand what it is that you're looking for. Another great book for... Let's see if... This is The Principles of Violin Playing. Can you see that? Yes. By Ivan Galami. This is a fantastic book. And I looked on Amazon, and you can still get it, but it is not cheap. I went to Meadowmount. I bought it at Meadowmount, the summer music camp. Oh, and, uh,
0: nice. You so have a dedication. I found a
1: four-leaf clover while I was there. Wow. <laughs> I taped it in the book. <laughs> <laughs> so it's my lucky book. Yeah. Another great book is called The Teaching of Action in String Playing by Paul Rowland. Mm-hmm. I looked on Amazon. It's also there. These books are not cheap, though. So you have to expect that. But those two, the Galamian book and the Paul Rowland book, are much, much more in depth. They'll take you farther than, say, the All for Strings book. Another nice book is called It's The Viola by Henry Barrett. And that's, I know it's not the violin, but that has some tremendous information. And a lot of violinists play viola too. And there's some information in here that is not even the other. So I recommend all of those books, they're okay, fantastic. Perfect.
0: Yeah, I want just to mention to our audience that they can find links to these books on uh, your dedicated page which is, just to not forget, wwwvirtualsheetmusiccom interviews L. All right, let's move uh, on with an um, actually a last question by John Parkinson, who asks, what do you consider to be the most important daily violin exercise?
1: That's a good question. Key,
0: key question, I think. Yeah,
1: it is. <clears throat> Well, I can tell you what one of my teachers said to me, and he said it like this. He said, the secret, he said to me, the secret is practicing trills. Now, I'm not gonna say that it's totally true. I'm just going to tell you what he said to me, okay? And what he was talking about was the lifting motion from the base knuckle and following the pathway to the fingertip and always hitting it in the same place. Lifting with energy, so that you're not in, in, in. You tap, you lift with energy. I even heard a famous violin violinist once say, you should lift twice as fast as you set it down. I don't know how to do that myself, <laughs> but the point is, you're lifting with energy. But you're tapping, and he said to me, it doesn't have to be fast, but it has to be accurate. Yeah. Now, another yeah. professor I studied with said you could practice trills and try and increase the speed by working in small bursts. So bzz, stop, bzz, stop, bzz, stop, so that you're trying to increase your, I think they call it twitch muscle, your reflex speed. That's firing the same muscle over and over and over. I will also say for those of you that are advanced enough, when I warm up, my goal is to get the pads firm. I don't like the spongy or soft sensation my fingers have in the morning. I don't wanna perform with it that way. So what I'll do is a scale on one string with one finger and I'll go up and back down and then I'll add the second finger and do the scale on the second finger, go up and add the third finger. And by the time I'm done with that, my fingers have the groove in them and the pads feel solid enough that I feel confident and I'm ready to go. If you want to just warm up your vibrato or practice your intonation, slow scales are just
0: best. Sure. I, that, that actually makes me remember when I used to be a student at a conservatory in Milan, in Italy. Uh, there were actually two different movements inside the students. There were students uh, that used to do just scales every day. And student, students doing just trills all the day. <laughs> and uh, I, I used to belong to the second movement, doing trills all the time. Right. And I remember Laura, my wife... She used to be a violinist too, tell me, you should stop to do just thrills, and begin (laughs) to do even scales, and actually it's it's right. We need actually both
1: probably. You need both.
0: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So that's pretty funny story. So we are done with the questions from our audience, and I have my final personal question, which is, uh, do we have any plans uh, to come here visiting in South California anytime soon?
1: Oh, I need to come and, and learn how to surf.
0: <laughs> Me too. <I> live
1: right, <laughs> Maybe live right we can do it water, together. But the, the waves are too small for real surfing. So, sure, let's do it. Let's it, go surfing.
0: Yeah, sure. So, I really hope to to meet you personally because it will be a Me great too. honor.
1: That would be very nice.
0: All right, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much, Todd, for joining us today. Thank and thank you for watching.